computer center. This is Inside Politics with Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. It is a lovely day shaping up here in Kamloops. Uh, a little cloudy, but it's going to be hot, 27 degrees, so that's nice. Welcome to the panel this morning, uh, Global BC's Keith Baldry, BC Today's Shannon Waters, and the Vancouver Sons of Vaughn Palmer. Welcome all. Uh, good to be here. Good morning, Shane. Uh, Keith, are you on some kind of vacation? Are you, what's going on? I'm, going, I'm attending my niece's wedding in beautiful Owen Sound, Ontario. I get a wow. week off, and then I'm right back at it. <laughs> well, I'm glad to, get, to see you're getting some time away. But I'm, I'm, I'm uh, taking time off from my time off to come on here. So. Oh, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's, let's dive right into the Trans Mount thing, uh, probably the biggest news of the week. Uh, as we expected, not much surprise. The Prime Minister and, and his government uh, saying yes to Trans Mountain. They're not going to say no to something, and they drop four and a half billion dollars on. Uh, Keith, I thought the interesting thing, uh, there's a few of them here, but one of the more interesting things is the day before the Trudeau government declared uh, a crisis, uh, a climate crisis, and then the next day they buy up a pipeline, more than a few people have uh, have crawled foul on uh, on the disparity there. Uh, and then he announces this thing and says, hey, listen, I'm going to open it up to some First Nations participation, uh, maybe a little bit of ownership, and we're going to use the money to uh, to make the transition to a sort of a cleaner, greener economy. Uh, we're all aware of the sort of clever navigation he's trying to do there, but the real question is, did he stick the landing? Well, I mean, it was unfortunate time. I don't know why they went through with that uh, motion uh, the day before. It was kind of silly, and it did uh, open them up to criticism of hypocrisy. But I thought the, the one of the interesting aspects of his announcement was the pledge to tie up to $500 million a year in corporate tax revenues flowing from this government-owned corporation uh, directly to clean energy projects, which over time is a significant investment, the likes of which we've never seen before in terms of wind, uh, solar, uh, geothermal, bio, whatever, uh, to get a, to wean ourselves off fossil fuels. It's silly, I think, to suddenly say, "Well, we're just not going to uh, we're going to stop using fossil fuels full stop." If the pipeline hadn't been approved, the oil still would have left the ground in Alberta. It would have come down to the port of Vancouver via rail car, which is a far more dangerous way of shipping this uh, potentially toxic substance than um, than uh, pipelines. It was it was totally unrealistic politically and economically to think that suddenly that was just all going to remain in the ground. It just was never an option. So Trudeau really had no choice. As you say here, Shane, they bought the pipeline, which meant they really had no choice but to give it a green light. He was going to get criticism one way or another. Uh, that was clear, but interesting today, yet another poll out uh, from another reputable pollster, Angus yeah. Reid, uh, saying basically finding, uh, cementing the findings of all previous polls that by and large, Canadians and British Columbians, the majority of them support the pipeline and a relatively few uh, actually strongly reject the project. So he's on the, on the side of public opinion. How it breaks in the election in terms of writings of that is another matter, but uh, he went with public opinion here. And Vaughn Ian Anderson this week, who uh, has been fairly quiet uh, as far as being quoted in the media in the last little while, but he held a press conference. Uh, the crux of it was, we're chomping at the bit, we want to get going, uh, we've got, uh, we were ready to go, we want shovels in the ground, ideally if everything falls into place by September and get this thing built by 2022. Uh, is that a fairly realistic timeline, or what happens now? I, I, I think, uh, you know, if they're ever going to do it, they got to do it. You know, I thought the interesting thing about, about Anderson's announcement, and I, you know, I... I you try not to be too cynical about these things, but, you know, I kind of initially thought, well, they'll start building up, but they'll build it someplace where there won't be any protesters. No, they're, he says they're going to start working at Burnaby. And I gather if you look out your window, you can see pipe there. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, Shane, 
why don't you just go down to the hardware store, get a shovel, <laughs> go out, stick it in the ground, and the prime minister can say his first promise has already been kept <laughs> by you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> do it, Terry Lake. Could yeah. do this. Could do it together. <laughs> yeah, that's actually a funny point, and that's. I mean, uh, it was it was ironic to have a, a trainload of pipes sitting there on the day the announcement came out, and I was hosting my show that day. But that's not unusual. They have a they have a, a camp just to the, the west of Kamloops where they've been storing pipe. That pipe's been coming and going yeah. the whole time. So, so they're ready to go. Is is the thing? Yeah. And look, uh, you know, uh, seriously, uh, the, the question of a court challenge to stop this, uh, I think those odds are quite diminished now. Uh, you've had the, the federal overseer of the whole process, a retired judge of the Supreme Court of Canada, Frank Iacobucci, saying, "Look, the test has been made. Uh, the court, I think, the Court of Appeal will will accept that." judgment, and I don't think you'll see an injunction or any more court action to stop this. You may see court action, but I don't think it'll stop it. That leaves the question of protests, and, well, that is still a big question mark, whether or not the protests will be big enough to stop construction or whether it'll just be injunctions and people being arrested and hauled away. Yeah, and Shannon, speaking of injunctions, something else Ian talked about jumped out at me, and he he said that uh, they have an injunction they filed for and used a while back, and that injunction still stands in Obviously, he's very aware of the of the possibility of some pretty serious protests. But I guess, you know, when you can look at the polling numbers, and, and I'm sure there's going to be protests, but I wonder if, you know, the really hardcore protesters, whether their heart's really in it. I get a sense from some on social media, they're voicing opposition, but I, I, I don't know. They don't seem to be doing it with as much fervor as they would have, you know, four or five months ago. And I mean, it's been, it's one of those stories that as a journalist, when the decision came down and sort of everything was expected, it was like, okay, here we go again. Like this, the the decision was the same. The reaction was very familiar, very similar. Some people celebrating and excited, others sort of um, appreciative, but skeptical. And then others, you know, vowing to protest here in Victoria, there is a protest scheduled for Saturday. Protesters are planning to march from downtown Victoria, about 20 kilometers out to the Saanich Peninsula. So I guess we'll have an idea fairly soon of sort of at least here, how many people, People are actually willing to show up and go on a very long march to demonstrate their opposition to the pipeline. Um, And it does sound, you know, Vaughn mentioned uh, further legal challenges. It does sound like the First Nations near the terminus of the pipeline are planning another legal challenge that the Tsleil-Waututh are probably going to be going back to court over this project. Um, they think they have a good chance at it. They don't think that the um, second round of consultations with First Nations was enough. Um, but, you know, again, we're going to have to see what the courts say about that, given that, you know, their previous challenge was successful, but then the government has gone back and tried to address their concern. Yeah, and on the First Nations front, Keith, uh, uh, to reiterate, to sit off the top, I mean, uh, there's going to be some kind of re-engagement process. It sounds like they're going to open up some percentage of the pipeline for communities uh, along the pipeline route. I talked to Mike Laborde, Whispering Pines First Nation mm-hmm. chief, and who's also a spokesman for uh, a consortium of First Nations who actually tabled an offer yep. uh, for the pipeline, and there's another two First Nations groups I'm aware of that are trying to do the same thing, and he actually yep. told me that Bill Morneau told him that we might open it up for some level of purchase among the First Nations communities, but other interested groups may have the option to buy more more over and above that. Do you think that's enough uh, to sweeten the pot for some of those who are opposed or no? 
Well, I'm not sure about those who are opposed, but I think it's going to sweeten the pot to the point where it's going to make it hard to continue to oppose this project in the same fashion that's been going on for months, if not years. One thing that, the, 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 Shannon's right, it's the same story, it just goes on and on and on. With one critical difference is that recently we've seen First Nations who support the pipeline, or at least view it as a means of achieving some economic prosperity uh, for their members, many of whom are just face grinding poverty, and they're speaking up in a way they never have before, to the point where they've, it's not, Michael Bourdais and uh, other uh, consortiums, are not just paying lip service here. They have actually gone out and started to do the paperwork, talking to the banks, securing financing, talking about bond, uh, issuing of bonds and, and floating bonds as a main ways of securing financing for this, and have actually had some increasingly detailed talks with Bill Morneau and his ministry staff. So this is a real game changer. If if uh, the Iron Coalition, which Michael Overday is part of, or Project Reconciliation, which is sort of a Western Canada uh, First Nations consortium, or the uh, Indian Resource Council, which are bands that have oil and gas operations on their territory, if one of them or all three of them get involved in purchasing a major equity stake in this pipeline, it's going to be hard for environmental groups and people like Stuart Phillip to continue to insist that they speak for everyone when they will be accused of blocking First Nations self-determination because these First Nations view this project as key to solving some real entrenched economic woes. And that's a big change than what the conversation was about five years ago. Yeah, a matter of fact, uh, UBCIC recently uh, sent out an open letter to those groups asking them to stand down, and it's not wise. Uh, I had <laughs> Mike... it back to them. Yeah, I had Mike Laborde on that same day, and he basically said, "Listen, UBCIC doesn't speak for me or my band in this situation." So well, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, the, the uh, we've got a marked on our calendar already too. July twenty second, the federal government starting uh, essentially meetings on. Indigenous ownership of the line. Yeah. Uh, there's a session in Kamloops, mm-hmm. Victoria, Vancouver, and Edmonton. Uh, the the feds say they're going to have resource people there, financial advisors, accountants, federal officials, and essentially to start the serious talks to get started about First Nations taking a piece of ownership. So this thing is getting underway right away, and I think that will mitigate some of the opposition as well. And Shannon, the government continues, or the province, uh, continues to burn the candle at both ends on the court front. We know they're going to the Supreme Court on the uh, on the reference case on one side of the argument, and on the other side of the argument, they're going uh, to Alberta and filing a second lawsuit trying to prevent them from turning off the tap. So one, we want control of the pipeline, and some say, and oh, please God, don't turn off the pipeline, which seems uh, incongruous. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting action to watch. I was late learning about the federal case and been kind of keeping our eyes on Alberta and I was I kind of had to laugh at Premier Jason Kenney's reaction to the approval of the pipeline um, being it's not approval is not it being built and also saying we need pipelines in, in every single direction. So I think BC and Alberta are going to continue to be sort of at odds over this. Um, Premier Horgan was very specific in saying, or explicit rather, in saying, we have not obstructed this project. We have been handing out permits, but we are also, you know, sort of considering all our all our options when it comes to this project that we have said we will use every tool in the toolbox to stop. Um, and it sounds like they might be open to joining legal action launched by First Nations if it comes to that, depending on the substance of the case, Corgan said. Um, but yeah, so BC is going to have quite a few legal actions to be keeping an eye on over the next few months. I don't know if the reference case has actually been filed yet. 
Um, yes, but we is. now have yeah, two Friday. has it. Okay. Yeah, yeah last Friday. Um, so they they have that one going on. We'll see whether that one actually gets heard. I've heard some debate about whether or not the province has that right or it might end up getting rejected out of hand. Um, but then we also have two suits against Alberta, one in their own court, Court of Queen's Bench, and then another one in federal court, I guess, just in case. Um, we're becoming a very litigious province. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Shane, you know, we, we talk to John Horgan all the time, and so do you. Yeah. Uh, and he it can get quite passionate about some subjects, and he can actually become emotional. I remember him tearing up um, when he announced the first increase in a de- more than a decade for, for uh, support payments for foster parents. Yeah. Um, getting emotional when he, when he talks about the social, you know, improving the social conditions for people. He almost has a monotone when he talked to him about this project. It is, he has scaled mm. down the opposition to this thing to such a degree. It is, it is a somewhat a couple of Hail Mary uh, passes here, particularly the one against the federal government, which, you know, no one thinks he's going to win. Yeah. Uh, quite apart from the rhetoric that was displayed beforehand, since he's become premier, it's like he never wants to talk about this because he knows he's not going to win. He'd rather talk about winners, and that means things like trying to solve the affordability issue which got him in office in the first place. Yeah, no, I agree. And Jason Kenney has been uh, making news for handing out earplugs in Alberta. Yeah. They really want to be handing out... <laughs> May, may really want to be handing out gags in BC, but anyway, <laughs> we'll uh, we'll take a quick break here in Inside Politics, and we'll return on the other side and continue our conversation with Keith, Shannon, and Vaughn. Radio NL, RadioNL.com, local news now. Accountable to you for Kamloops Computer Center. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio NL. Welcome back. We're talking to Keith Baldry, Von Palmer, and Shannon Waters. Guys, uh, a slight transition from uh, Trans Mountain to Forestry, uh, picking up on a conversation we had last week because the, the hits just keep on coming. Um, Vaughn, I was curious. I, I talked to Bob Simpson, who has managed to do some pretty good work in Quinell to try and transition that community uh, and has to uh, some degree um, improved the situation or made them less vulnerable to some of the bad news going on. But he said something uh, when I talked to him this week that caught my ear, and is it, it was we're in the midst of all these sawmill closures, curtailments, shift cutbacks, uh, all this bad news that comes out almost daily now, uh, he's saying that uh, once sawmills are done, pulp, uh, pulp mills are going to be next, and that's going to unleash a whole new round of woes, and that's what he's really worried about. Uh, do, you, do you concur with that? or? Yeah, I mean, I think they've already announced a slowdown for the mill in Taylor, so, uh, yeah, it's already happening. Mm-hmm. Look, the, the Liberals have... Uh, put together, when you see it all gathered in one place, a list of all the closures, curtailments, and postponements, and shift reductions since the beginning of the year. And it's a very long list, and there's a lot of B.C. communities hit. I'm surprised that there has been so little action by the government on this. And I know what you had Carol James on last week. And basically she said they're not going to lift a finger to offer any relief to the industry at all, no financial, nothing. I, I can't imagine that being the NDP position if they were in opposition. They 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 spent a long time trying to build public awareness of what was happening in the, in under the Liberals, uh, mill closures and changes in forestry. Um, but now they're just letting it wash over them. I, I'm quite surprised. Shannon, do you get a sense that there's pressure mounting on the government to do anything? I I, I mean I, I get it in these communities. It's devastating. I'm not getting a sense the province feels the need to do much of anything at this point. 
I, so I asked Morgan about this this week. We were at a school funding announcement in Langford, but it was an opportunity to go and ask him after he came back from his trip to Europe. You know, what are you what are you going to do about all of these closures? How are you going to rescue this industry that is so foundational in this province? And Horgan basically said, we're already working to address these issues. He pointed to here on the coast, which is not having quite the same um, levels of sort of closures in, in imminent doom, for lack of a better phrase, that is happening in the interior. But he said, you know, here on the coast, we've got the Coastal Forest Initiative. We're trying to look at ways to keep, you know, logs in communities so they're getting processed and, and there's value added to them. And in the interior, what he said, and this is not the, the first time he used the phrase when asked about forestry, is we have to stop chasing volume and we have to start chasing value. Um, and I do think that there there is some truth to that because from everything that I have seen the fiber supply in the interior of this province when it comes to wood products is not coming back anytime soon. And in fact, by the end of the summer, we may have several million fewer hectares of loggable fiber than we do at the moment. So essentially what the government's position seems to be is that they've already sort of started the ball rolling on this issue and it's been a very long-standing issue forestry in bc has been declining for basically as long as i've been alive um they've already started the ball rolling to try and deal with these significant challenges they're going to stick to that James has also said, you know, we are asking Ottawa to step in and add funding. The province isn't planning to do it, but they're hoping that Ottawa is going to cough up um, and just kind of hope that that is going to be enough or that at some point they manage to turn the tide. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a very, you know, it's obviously a very serious situation and there's a lot of people in this province who are worried about their economic prospects given that their local job generator is going to be closing or reducing its shift. Yeah, Keith, uh, to go back to what Carol James said, she said, listen, in February we had some budget measures, wildfire mitigation, things like that. Those are going to help. But no, there's no new pot of money coming on this. Was that, is that a hard truth or was that something stupid to say? Well, no, for now that's a hard truth. I mean, it's, Shannon's right. I mean, the, the, the timber supply is not going to increase. Uh, the wildfire season is going to even diminish that supply even further. Uh, Horgan's embarking on a value-added strategy, which is fine and probably makes sense. The problem with that, that's over a very long term. You're not going to create value-added overnight um, and, and at the same time protect these lost jobs. Where the NDP, I think, uh, finds itself is this continues to display evidence it's very much a party that is focused on the suburbs of Metro Vancouver. That's what got it elected. It's it's much more interested in, in the suburban housing costs, suburban transit, in places like Surrey, Tri-Cities, Maple Ridge, and Burnaby. And that's where the election is going to be won and lost. They are basically disconnected through much of the province. They have very few MLA, very few representation in that caucus room come from forest-dependent communities. So, and there's inevitable uh, rationalization, as, as the industry likes to call it, of, of the industry, uh, the contraction which means the closure of 6 to 12 sawmills, a number of pulp mills. There's going to be hundreds of people out of work. You start doing the, the um, economic uh, numbers with them. for every job loss in the forest sector, that can equal you know, an, almost an equal job in the, in the other sectors because of the sort of trickle-down effect of uh, eco lower economic activity. So uh, the, the NEP in the 90s had a different attitude to forestry because they had a lot more MLAs spread out around the province, and you did see some job protection commissioner moves from the old NDP and the social friends before them. 
Uh, I don't see Carol James really coming up with a, a lot of financial relief for a lot of these people. Perhaps over time, though, as there's evidence that the the interior of the province and the north or the economic core is being hollowed out because of this crisis, perhaps that's when they'll bend. But uh, right now, I don't see them listening. Yeah. Uh, let's get caught up to the news at the bottom of the hour, and uh, we'll continue talking to Keith, uh, Vaughn, and Shannon, and uh, we'll change up tom- uh, topics going puff, puff, pass to cannabis right after this. Now, Radio NL, 610 AM, and RadioNL.com. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics. Once again, Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. We're talking to Keith Baldry, Shannon Waters, and Vaughn Palmer. Guys, there's an interesting um, showdown brewing between municipalities and the province all over uh, the sharing of revenue from legal cannabis taxation. Uh, municipalities have incurred a lot of costs. They're on the ground. They're setting this stuff up. They're permitting and bylaw and enforcement. Uh, and they were told, or at least strongly hinted, that this cost would be covered off by a share of marijuana taxation revenues. But so far, no deal has materialized with the prov- uh, with the province. Um, Shannon, as we look at this thing, uh, how serious do you think it's going to get? Because uh, pretty soon it's going to be City Hall budget time. Yeah, and it sounds like if, you know, the cost of, of starting to get uh, cannabis operations sort of certified and approved in local communities isn't coming from the province, well, local governments are saying they're going to be downloaded onto the local taxpayer instead. So I think we are going to see some pressure mount on this. We haven't yet seen, I don't think, the exact amount that BC has brought in when it comes to taxes on cannabis. No. We certainly don't seem to have that many stores open in like approved and um, regulated cannabis stores operating in all that many communities around BC. And I think there's only a handful of the government stores, many of them up in your neck of the woods that are operating at this point in time. So I do think it's going to be a sore spot and a, and a source of contention and tension between the province and these local communities. I, I don't know how it's going to shake out quite just yet. Keith, an interest. I mean, Carol James is on last week, and she didn't say it outright, but she hinted pretty strongly that, uh, listen, revenues aren't that clear; they're they're underwhelming. Uh, and she basically said or danced around saying, um, well, without the revenue picture and knowing what it's going to be, we simply can't have a deal with municipalities. And uh, I was reflecting on that this week, and something occurred to me that the federal government agreed to give uh, provinces and territories 75% of marijuana taxation before there was any product on the shelves or it was legal. So revenue would have been a complete mystery at that point. So do you buy that excuse or no? Well, Carol James is... um Again, showing signs that she's a finance minister. Um, her predecessors, whether they're in the BC Liberals or the NDP in the 90s or the Socrates in the 80s, finance ministers are generally prudent to the point of being miserly. They don't like to share their revenues with anyone. They look askance when others come with their hands out seeking money from them. And in our previous segment, we talked about her disinterest so far in helping forest-dependent communities with any type of bailout scheme for workers. And that's the approach finance ministers take. I think we're early in the game on cannabis. There's still a lot of unknowns here. I think this is going to be a topic of debate at the Union of East Municipalities Convention in September. Uh, that'll probably be one of the f- first, first and foremost topics up for discussion. As we get closer to the next provincial election, though, I think you may see James soften her position somewhat. Again, go back to my previous point. This is all about 
replicating suburban governments. But as Shannon says, we haven't really seen a lot of stores out there yet. I, uh, that's why I say it. Yeah. It's early in the conversation. We want to see exactly what type of dollars are we talking about. Before she commits to a percentage, she has to figure out is, uh, if I agree to 50-50, 75-25, how much money am I losing and how much money are they gaining? Once she gets a firmer uh, grasp of the numbers, I think you'll see some more certainty on this. I don't blame her for being a little hesitant right now to dive in with both feet because there's not a lot of certainty out I, there. I just wonder if the pressure is building because, as I said, and the concern's been raised here in Kamloops by American Christian, um, they're going to have to factor this cost in next budget cycle, which means property tax increases, which to some degree yeah. uh, will be covering off the marijuana cost. And, and, and Vaughn, I talked to Terry Lake about it, who, as we know, uh, works in now in the private cannabis sector with the Hexa Corporation, and he called Carol James' comments crazy and then pointed out, listen, the province is dragging its feet on issuing licenses. There's no revenue in BC because they're not opening stores fast enough. And point in fact, <coughs> there's more legal cannabis stores in the city of Calgary than there is in the entirety of this province. Well, I would say the consistent theme between what James told you on cannabis and what she said on forestry is that provincial finances are tightening up. This contraction in the forest sector, that is going to contract a whole bunch of revenue streams for the provincial government. The contraction in the housing market, one of the reasons the Liberals didn't do anything about the housing market was because it was a terrific cash cow for the provincial government. That's contracting. So I think what you're also hearing, uh, the New Democrats have a bunch of promises that they haven't fully kept yet and that aren't fully funded. And at the same time, they're starting to get the warnings from finance that, hey, you know, we spent all that money that the Liberals left behind and now we don't have as much maneuvering room and we're closer to an election than the municipalities are. So I don't think a lot of money is going to be forthcoming from Victoria. Uh, to finish off uh, the the time with you guys, uh, the last topic I want to throw you is this this issue on endangered mountain caribou. Uh, we're aware of the, what precursor was to the Lexstrom report, which is the province made an absolute mess of consultations. Uh, Blair Lexstrom came out and basically just took a school bus and ran it back and forth over Doug Donaldson a few times. Um, you pointed out in your column today, Vaughn, uh, that this thing is has caused a lot of damage. And, and Mike Bernie, yes. who I talked to yesterday, said, listen, he said flat out racial tensions have been really inflamed in his neck of the woods as, yeah. as people were, were left out of the loop, rumors began flying, and uh, a segment of some real ugliness uh, came out there. Uh, is this going to be, uh, I mean, I guess... At the, there's end, a lot of the, at the end of the day, there's, there's no easy fix here. No, there's a lot of work still needs to be done, and that's what Lextrom said, and the Premier's given him more time to do it. But, you know, as a sign of how bad it is, uh, Lextrom couldn't even get a meeting with the two First Nations yeah. that negotiated this agreement in secret. And as for Donaldson, John Horgan found out there was a problem up there. He didn't find out about it from his forest minister, who was in charge of this process. He found out about it from a Liberal member of the opposition, Mike Bernier. That's yeah, Mike and Horgan went, oh, I didn't know it was as bad as all that. So that's like, look, uh, you know, I, I think uh, Donaldson's a nice guy, but I think he's underwhelming as forest minister. Keith, uh, what, what happens here? I mean, obviously the premiers come forward and said, listen, we messed this up. Uh, we brought Blair Lextrom. Even Mike Bernier said, hey, that politically that's a great move. Uh, but it sounds like there's still a pretty big problem there. And uh, the premier's yep. bought himself a year or two to try and sort it out. But, but what do you do? Well, I, t I texted back and forth with the forestry executive yesterday after the meeting, and he said, well, it's good news that it's basically they kicked the can down the road uh, because they don't need another problem right now in considering the crisis is about to unfold. But he said at the end of the day, it doesn't know what the solution is. He suspects 
the West Fraser Mill in Chetwin will still close or at least curtail operations dramatically because the, the, the supply, the fiber supply, is simply not there no matter what they do on the mountain caribou. So this is all part of the overall rationalization. But I think what this caribou problem is unmasked is the botched attempt to try to accommodate UNDRIP, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, into the economic reality of dis- uh, and, and reality of decision making on the ground. Donaldson, as you say, Shan, it's a great analogy. You, you know, driven over a few times by a school bus, driven by the premier. Uh, the impression, and certainly there's nothing to refute it, the only people he consulted with was First Nations, and that's enraged the non-First Nations people in that region. And and Lexstrom and Bernie have pointed to the the racial tensions that have resulted. So I think. This goes beyond just the forest industry. I think this is this is an example of, of the, the dynamite the government's playing with when it tries to implement UNDRIP, which seems to be, on this case, consult only with First Nations and just ignore non-First Nations. And that is just a, 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 just a, a problematic situation, to say the least. So I'm not sure how this is resolved, but I can tell you the process they use to get, get themselves into this has to be abandoned in other land use decisions. Everybody has to be consulted, not just one side. Yeah, and at the end of the day, let's not forget, because uh, uh, mountain caribou have been, have been decimated. At the end of the day, the, the, there's some of these herds that are literally teetering on the brink of extinction. Well, one of the interesting aspects of what the Premier did yesterday was announce this uh, possible two-year moratorium on natural gas uh, resource projects and timber cutting and all that kind of thing. Uh, any new projects, but not existing ones, they'll be more or less be left alone. I'm not, I'm not sure how you square that circle, Shannon. Yeah, and I think it's another question of like trying to walk a very fine line saying, yes, we are taking significant steps to try and preserve these iconic species that are on the brink of extinction, but we are trying to do it in a way that minimizes the economic impact. So we're not going to allow any new projects to get started and, you know, um, potentially further degrade already sensitive habitat that needs to be protected and restored in order for these caribou to thrive. Um, But we are going to let the operations that are already there keep working so that people aren't, you know, aren't losing their jobs because, you know, a mill is no longer operating or a mine is no longer operating. The question that this point i think is how how much action is the province willing to take that will have economic repercussions because i don't think anybody is at the point where they don't think that whatever action needs to be taken to protect these caribou um isn't going to have economic impacts and the premier has said you know we want ottawa to to provide funding to offset this. And that was something that came up in Lextrom's report as well. He says, you know, Ottawa needs to step up here and help people who are going to be hurting over these measures. Um, but if, if these, if these animals are so endangered and like, it kind of reminds me, I don't think they're quite in the same streets as like this, uh, the orcas that we have here in Victoria, but yeah. Is, are we going to be able to take enough action to save them or are we going to take all this action and cause all this economic pain and it's still not going to be enough and not make that difference, which would be tragic. But I think there's a very real possibility that that ends up being the case, that trying to walk a, a, a line on this issue results in not taking enough um, action to be effective, but still taking enough action to inflict economic pain on the people who are living in this region. Yeah, and to put the ridiculousness of this in context, back to the Harper government, the feds asked the provinces to table a plan to save these animals, and as we speak today, no single province has done that. That is a shame. Uh, guys, yeah. thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. Bye-bye. Thanks, Shane. 
There we go. There we go. That's, uh, That's Shannon Waters and Vaughn Palmer and Keith Baldry on the panel. We'll take a quick break. Todd Stone joins us next. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. You're listening to Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. Good morning and welcome back to Inside Politics. Real pleasure to be joined in studio by the uh, Kamloops MLA for Cam- Kamloops MLA for Kamloops South. There we go. Someone needs a coffee. How about the MLA for Kamloops South, Todd Stone? Todd, how are you? Uh, it's great to be here, uh, Shane. I get paid by the amount of times I mention Kamloops. You're, you're thorough if, uh, if nothing else. <laughs> hey, man, I wanted to bring on, you had a, a private member's bill that essentially died on the order paper, but it wanted to tackle vaping. You were, you, I remember you. I talked to you a little while ago. Uh, not only as an MLA, but as a father, you're concerned about this. And uh, a study at the University of Waterloo caught my attention. Basically, they're saying year over year, there's been about a 74% jump in vaping use among young people. It's exploded from about uh, 6 or 7% now to about you know 14% of youth are, are vaping. And I see it, since I talked to you, it's one of those things where you talk to somebody about it, and suddenly it's within your you know realm of thinking, and I see it all the time now. Yeah. Um, I know the bill didn't go anywhere, but how concerned are you about this? And 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 why you know why wouldn't a bill like that? I get the politics of stuff, and but why wouldn't a bill like that kind of serve sort of a greater good not be taken up? I suppose. Well, that's a very good question for Adrian Dix, uh, the health minister. Uh, technically speaking, the bill uh, that I introduced is still sitting on the order paper. Uh, it 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 would die um, at, at the moment of prorogation. So when we yeah. move to a new a new parliament. Um, uh, which which may happen this uh, this fall, uh, then the bill would die, and I would have to reintroduce it if I wanted to move forward with it. But yeah, look, uh, uh, British Medical Journal uh, published this report that you're speaking of uh, just uh, yesterday, and uh, indicated a, a 74% increase of vaping amongst youth year over year in Canada, the United States, uh, a lesser increase in in uh, England. Uh, a, a, a quite uh, um, uh, uh, quite alarming as well to, to see that this report has determined that there's also, for the first time in about a decade and a half, uh, youth uh, smoking rates in Canada um, are now increasing, uh, have gone up uh, year yeah. over year as well, about almost 50%. Yeah. Uh, so something has to be done. And this is why back in April, I introduced my private member's bill on vaping uh, to, uh, to try and, and put on the table some tangible actions that uh, John Horgan, Adrian Dix, the NDP could embrace race to, uh, to, to at least uh, do more to keep these vaping products out of the hands of our, of our kids. I've acknowledged all along that as a smoking cessation tool for adults, there is a role for vaping in our, in our society. No question about that. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I don't need uh, any more studies and reports to come out like the one today to, to know um, what I see uh, every single time I drop my daughter off at uh, Valley View Secondary uh, or every conversation I have with, uh, with, with uh, teachers, principals, and, and parents uh, at my daughter's school uh, to know that we have a health crisis unfolding amongst our youth with respect to vaping. Uh, and I'm very disappointed that, again, after today's uh, release of this report, indicating that 74% increase year over year of vaping amongst youth, uh, Adrian Dix's response today was, um, we have suggested a number of actions to the federal government, and we're going to await action by the federal government. Um, that, to me, is a complete and total cop-out. Uh, it, it's irresponsible, and it's borderline negligent. Uh, so I'm calling on Adrian Dix and the NDP uh, to uh, to take action, uh, whether it's um, the items I proposed uh, or or others. Uh, get get up and, and do something about this, because it's uh, it, it's harming the health of our, of our kids, and it's potentially... 
uh, resulting in an entire generation of youth becoming addicted to nicotine uh, in this province, in this country. Uh, to be fair, Health Canada does have a role in this, but what what what's in the provincial jurisdiction to the best of your ability? If they if Health Canada is not going to do something, what could the province do? Well, this uh, this is an area. Health uh, is an area of, of shared jurisdiction, uh, yeah. shared between the feds and the and the province. So uh, th- this is an area where uh, uh, yes, the feds uh, uh, could and are considering uh, taking uh, a series of actions around cracking down on advertising, uh, cracking down on online access to uh, to the from a retail perspective, they're looking at plain packaging. They're looking at a whole wide range of things. Problem is, is it takes, as we know, uh, most things in Ottawa uh, take a heck of a long time to ever see the light of day. Yeah. Uh, and because this is a, a shared area of jurisdiction, the province could act today to uh, to ban uh, kid-friendly flavoring of, of vape juice in British Columbia. Uh, the province uh, 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 could take action today to restrict uh, the retail uh, sales uh, opportunities for for vaping. Uh, the, the province could impose much tougher penalties for non-compliance uh, if uh, uh, vape stores or uh, other retail outlets uh, are caught uh, uh, selling these products uh, to our kids. The province of British Columbia could dramatically increase enforcement uh, and, and actually uh, take this issue seriously uh, from an enforcement perspective. Uh, the province could take action from an education and awareness perspective and and, and pump uh, the, the resources needed in our high schools and our middle schools to actually uh, ensure that there are supports for, for our kids um, uh, with, with respect to, to prevention and and, uh, and uh, addiction. So there's a whole wide range of things. We don't have to sit around and wait for Ottawa yeah. uh, to, to, to take action on this file. Uh, if Adrian Dix and John Horgan were really serious about addressing this uh, this uh, evolving, uh, rapidly evolving uh, health uh, crisis amongst our kids, uh, they would they would take action and they would do so now. Yeah, I find that the most offensive part of this piece because again, as, as I mentioned, uh, since talking to you about it, some you know you just I see it more now. It's just more uh, obvious to me. Uh, I was in a mall in the Lower Mainland and saw an advertisement in the middle of the mall for a, a pink colored vaping pen, and I thought to myself, well, yeah, I know who that's targeted at. Um, and I'll tell you, you've the first time you've heard this story, but since I did the interview with the last pushed out a story, um, my nephew who, who loves his vaping, um, stumbled on the story online and wouldn't talk to me for a month. So <laughs> uh, how do you reach the kids? Cause that's at the end of the day, this is what we're talking about. This is exploding among youth. It's creating habits and patterns, uh, that aren't good. And, and God only knows the health risk, but, uh, how do we deal with that? Well, and that and that's that. I think you've hit the nail on the head. In, in so far as uh, from a prevention and education uh, and awareness perspective, uh, the, the programs need to be put in place in all of our schools, uh, and they need to be led and delivered by uh, kids. You know, it's it's youth uh, youth programs focused, uh, you know, by youth for youth. Uh, there are pilots that that have worked very very well. I, I spoke last time. Uh, you and I talked about this. I spoke about a program in Vernon that yeah. was piloted in a few schools there called Preventure. Um, uh, this is a, a program that um, has has demonstrated a, a, a year over year uh, significant decline in vaping rates in those schools in Vernon as a result. Now it wasn't the parents talking to the kids or the or the teachers saying don't do it. Uh, it wasn't the old school method of showing gory pictures and whatnot. None of that works with with kids. We we know that. But when when youth um, are are leading these these sessions and um, and 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 youth are, are coaching and mentoring other youth. The programs really do work. They but they require some funding, and that's a, a piece again that that Adrian Dix, uh, John Horgan, 
uh, if they were serious about this, uh, they could step up tomorrow and they could make it a priority. Uh, I understand, you know, measles immunization and so forth is a, is a priority um, from a health slash education, uh, you know, schools perspective. Yeah. Uh, Adrian and Dix and I talked about that. But I, I think we can walk and chew gum at the same time here in terms of uh, um, rolling out programs in our, in our schools. Uh, another school year is ending, uh, you know, some cases this week, some cases next week in BC. Um, but let's make darn sure that we're uh, we're ready to roll out uh, some, some tough action on this and 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 make sure we roll out the funding needed in the schools uh, for uh, in time for uh, for school uh, when it resumes in September. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's switch gears here. Uh, community benefit agreements, and I know you you've rung in on this issue quite a bit. We've had out in Revelstoke, of course, uh, with the Highway One expansion there up thirty five percent. The province says, "Oh, that's not all about the CBAs." Uh, but there's no cost. There's no question that this is increasing cost. Uh, they promised to four-lane the highway number one in the campaign uh, faster than you guys do. They're going to move on light speed on this thing. <laughs> if anything, it's been modeling along about normal or, or slower than normal. Uh, are you concerned about the CBA impacts on on the actual work as they, you know, kind of plod ahead with this highway stuff or no? Well, two years ago, we said uh, community benefit agreements, which, and by the way, they're not that. That's a fancy marketing uh, uh, slogan for, for what is really union-only construction. Yeah. Uh, we, we said that these, these requirements were going to delay projects. We said that these requirements were going to increase the cost of projects. And we said that these uh, requirements were going to reduce the scope of, of projects. Well, guess what? Uh, the, uh, the first uh, Trans-Canada CBA community benefit uh, uh, highway project uh, uh, which went uh, to tender and was awarded uh, uh, not that long ago. It's, it's called Illisillawa. It's, it's just uh, just outside of Revelstoke. Uh, uh, just as we said, this this project's being uh, being uh, launched. Uh, construction is starting two years later than uh, it was ready to go under our former government. Uh, it's going to cost twenty two million dollars more, and taxpayers get half a kilometer less of four laning for that uh, twenty two million dollars more. Uh, the cost overrun is uh, is almost entirely attributable to this uh, union only requirement. Now I'm hearing uh, that the that the CBA requirements are having the same impact. The the projects just east of Kamloops, um, uh, what was supposed to have been uh, tendered uh, in the fall of 2017, and then it was uh, at some point last year, and then it was uh, for sure it's going to be the summer of 2019. Uh, I'm now hearing that it 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 could be uh, uh, the earliest this this fall and. More likely, uh, uh, bumped to this to the spring of 20, uh, 2020. Um, that means construction would 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 uh, officially be about three years behind uh, from when we had that project ready to go. Uh, I'm also hearing that uh, government is increasingly um, finding it challenging to actually bring uh, contractors uh, or companies to the table to even uh, from an, even from an expressions of interest perspective, which mm. means. Uh, we're likely going to see uh, further delays because government may only have one or two bidders uh, bidding on projects, and uh, uh, rightfully so, that uh, that that uh, might result in, or, um, or as expected, that will will result in in a higher cost for those uh, for those projects. Why why would contractors be wary of of the CBA, or what are you hearing of the concern is is keeping them away? Well, uh, the the uh, the inability to comfortably put a fence around the risk profile associated with uh, the union-only requirements of uh, of the CBA, um, uh, plain and simple. Um, we're we're hearing even with the Patello project that there are very significant concerns uh, that all three proponents who are uh, currently in the mix on, on that tendering process that all three um, may not be st- still standing uh, before that tender is awarded. Uh, as uh, a couple of them make some pretty 
uh, I think, some tough internal decisions around whether or not they're, they're going to be prepared to assume uh, the, 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 the very significant risks that are associated with these union-only requirements. So, um, you know, the, the John Horgan would be, would be uh, serving the public well if he just acknowledged that this is a mess. It was a bad idea from the very beginning. Uh, uh, taxpayers were getting very good money for, for the tax dollars spent uh, previously. Everybody was busy, union and non-union contractors. Everybody was working. Yeah. We had uh, growing numbers of Indigenous people working on projects. Uh, the one out east of Canlis, Hoffman's Bluff. At its peak, we had 30% of the entire workforce on that project were Indigenous from local uh, uh, First Nations. Um, so uh, there, there's, uh, uh, I think there's a time and there's a place to admit that, uh, that you got it wrong. Uh, and it's time to reset. Uh, I would suggest that uh, we're at that place now, and, and John Horgan uh, uh, should uh, should end this uh, the CBA practice. Uh, on the cannabis front, uh, you're a community affairs critic as well. But I talked to Carol James the other day, and she and I told you this off air. But um, the essential message to me was. Uh, we don't know what the revenues are. The revenues haven't come pouring in. Uh, in her words, costs are outweighing whatever profits there might be on the cannabis front. Therefore, I had a pretty strong impression from her that we can't do a deal with municipalities on splitting those, uh, sharing those tax revenues. Municipalities, of course, incurring big upfront costs and, and setting this whole regime up. Uh, does that pass water with you, Todd, or no? Uh, not at all. Uh, this is a government that uh, made it very clear in the last election campaign uh, that they were going to cut municipalities, uh, local governments into that revenue pie, no matter how much revenue was in the pie. Uh, John Horgan was very, very clear in the last election that when it came to cannabis revenue uh, flowing uh, as a result of the legalization of this new product, uh, that local governments were going to, uh, they were going to do good by local governments. And yeah. uh, so my my uh, my challenge to John Horgan is this, uh, whether the revenue pie is a million dollars net a year or ends up being a hundred million dollars a year, um, fulfill your commitment, uh, negotiate the deal with local governments, uh, agree on on the on the percentage allocations uh, of of that revenue um, uh, from a principal perspective. And uh, once uh, once we we know once that revenue actually starts flowing in, um, uh, then you can you know you can worry about the disbursement of the of the cash at that point. Um, I, I will also say that. Uh, I think we all we all knew that it was going to take a few years uh, when you're creating an entirely new sure. legal industry like this uh, from top to bottom. There was going to take some it was going to take some time to to really figure out uh, or see what those revenue streams were going to be. And many have cautioned that this was not going to be a, a huge windfall for for uh, for government, the various levels of government. But at the end of the day, there will be some revenue to share, and uh, John Horgan should fulfill his commitment uh, to local government and uh, and 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 negotiate a, a cost uh, um, or a revenue um, a share deal with uh, with local governments. It occurs to me that the province may be punching itself in the face a little here. I mean, they're they're the ones in charge of approving the second phase of the licensing. Once the municipality does, uh, we don't have a whole lot of stores. As a matter of fact, it was I found an interesting note the other day that there's more legal cannabis stores in Calgary than there is in the entirety of the province of British Columbia. If you don't have stores, you're not selling stuff, therefore you're not getting any revenue. A little simplistic, but it kind of boils down to that. Um, I mean, we don't want organized <clears throat> crime in these stores for sure, uh, but are they are they dragging their feet? Could it be a quicker, more expedient process? Well, oh, the, the the process for uh, uh, the the application process and approvals uh, on the provincial government side of the equation uh, with respect to cannabis retail stores is a is a is a complete mess. 
uh, you're you're right in in saying that we're far behind other other provinces. Uh, I, I don't know if it's because part of the uh, part of the approval process is in the Solicitor General's ministry, and the criminal record check part of the process is with the Attorney General folks. Um, you'd think the right hand and the left hand could kind of coordinate on this. The the, the end of the day, though, uh, expectations have been raised uh, uh, within the business community. There are entrepreneurs in Kamloops and other communities who um, who have filled out all the paperwork, did so, you know, six, seven, eight months ago, sent it all in. You know, we're talking like inches and inches of paperwork here yeah. that you have to fill out, and rightfully so. Yeah. They did that, you know, uh, six, seven, eight months ago, and uh, they're still waiting uh, for their approvals. Meanwhile, they've uh, they've secured uh, space. They're paying rent on space that is empty, uh, you know, losing losing a heck of a lot of uh, a lot of money in the process. It's yeah. not it's not fair. Uh, it's not yeah. right, and it's not necessary. Uh, the government did not waste any time opening up, uh, you know, the BC Cannabis Store, uh, the government uh, store in Kamloops. That seemed to move at lightning speed. Um, I'm not sure why uh, they're not doing good by uh, the small business uh, entrepreneurs out there who have taken significant risk uh, to this point uh, to. Um, Operate a open and operate a legal uh, cannabis, uh, a private uh, legal uh, cannabis store. Last question on this topic, and we have the UBCM convention in September, and shortly after that, the annual budget process will begin for municipalities. I know Ken Christian here has said, and I'm sure he echoes what a lot of other mayors are thinking right now, is they have these costs that have been sitting there so far unaddressed with the hope this deal will be done and that they could start alleviating that cost burden. If we don't have a deal before September or into the fall, um, they're going to have to pass that on to property taxes and get those costs recouped. Uh, do you think it's going to, the? I don't know, do you think things are going to blow up in, in the province's face when all these municipal taxpayers see that coming? Oh, I, I think so. I mean, someone's going to have to pay for it uh, yeah. at the end of the day. And, and all, all we're saying is that uh, John Horgan, uh, he promised uh, that there would be a revenue share deal um, on the, on, uh, in place in, in short order. Uh, we're, we're now two years in uh, to his government uh, and, and local governments are still flapping in the wind here waiting for, uh, for, for an agreement from the province. I suspect when you look at, 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 at the, uh, the NDPs or Carol James's uh, comments on this the other day and, and um, you layer that on top of her comments about, um, sorry, the kitty's empty uh, with respect to any further support for our ailing forest sector and the forest communities. Um, uh, you layer that on top of uh, declining revenues from uh, uh, on the housing front uh, due to all of their punitive taxes um, on, on housing. Uh, I would not be surprised if we're not going to soon find ourselves uh, in a situation where this province is back in deficit and so i suspect part of part of the um, uh, the the reality check that is uh, underway within the premier's office is um, oh my gosh we're um, uh, we're 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 actually losing revenue left right and center um, we're going to have to start saying no uh, and uh, maybe that's part of what's what's happening with respect to a cannabis revenue share as well mm. todd always a pleasure thanks man Thank you, Shane. And that was the MLA for Kamloops South, Todd Stone. By the way, as far as Health Minister Adrian Dix goes, he has sent out a release saying, yes, he is looking to Ottawa to act on the vaping issue. Yes, he is concerned about the vaping issue. And he added in the release that he is poised to take steps at a provincial level if Ottawa moves too slowly. That brings an end to this edition of Inside Politics. We'll see you again right here on Radio NL, same time next Friday. Where the interior stays connected. This is CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. Radio NL, 610 AM. Local News Now.